Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 15 of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Chapter 15 Shadows on the Sage Slope In the cloudy, threatening, waning summer days, shadows lengthened down the sage slope, and Jane Witherstein likened them to the shadows gathering and closing in around her life. Mrs. Larkin died, and little Fay was left an orphan with no known relative. Jane's love redoubled. It was the saving brightness of a darkening hour. Fay turned now to Jane in childish worship and Jane at last found full expression for the mother-longing in her heart. Upon Lassiter, too, Mrs. Larkin's death had some subtle reaction. Before, he had often, without explanation, advised Jane to send Fay back to any Gentile family that would take her in. Passionately and reproachfully and wonderingly, Jane had refused even to entertain such an idea. And now Lassiter never advised it again, grew sadder and quieter in his contemplation of the child, and infinitely more gentle and loving. Sometimes Jane had a cold, inexplicable sensation of dread when she saw Lassiter watching Fay. What did the rider see in the future? Why did he, day by day, grow more silent, calmer, cooler, yet sadder in prophetic assurance of something to be? No doubt, Jane thought, the rider, in his almost superhuman power of foresight, saw behind the horizon the dark, lengthening shadows that were soon to crowd in gloom over him and her and little Fay. Jane Witherstein awaited the long-deferred breaking of the storm with a courage and embittered calm that had come to her in her extremity. Hope had not died. Doubt and fear, subservient to her will, no longer gave her sleepless nights and tortured days. Love remained. All that she had loved, she now loved the more. She seemed to feel that she was defiantly flinging the wealth of her love in the face of misfortune and of hate. No day passed but she prayed for all, and most fervently for her enemies. It troubled her that she had lost, or had never gained, the whole control of her mind. In some measure, reason and wisdom and decision were locked in a chamber of her brain, awaiting a key. Power to think of some things was taken from her. Meanwhile, abiding a day of judgment, she fought ceaselessly to deny the bitter drops in her cup, to tear back the slow, the intangibly slow growth of a hot, corrosive lichen eating into her heart. On the morning of August 10th, Jane, while waiting in the court for Lassiter, heard a clear, ringing report of a rifle. It came from the grove, somewhere toward the corrals. Jane glanced out in alarm. The day was dull, windless, soundless. The leaves of the cottonwoods drooped, as if they had foretold the doom of Witherstein House, and were now ready to die and drop and decay. Never had Jane seen such shade. She pondered on the meaning of the report. Revolver shots had, of late, cracked from different parts of the grove, spies taking snapshots at Lassiter from a cowardly distance. But a rifle report meant more. Riders seldom used rifles. 
Judkins' inventors were the exceptions she called to mind. Had the men who hounded her hidden in her grove, taken to the rifle to rid her of Lassiter, her last friend? It was probable, it was likely, and she did not share his cool assumption that his death would never come at the hands of a Mormon. Long had she expected it. His constancy to her, his singular reluctance to use the fatal skill for which he was famed, both now plain to all Mormons, laid him open to inevitable assassination. Yet what charm against ambush and aim and enemy he seemed to bear about him? No, Jane reflected, it was not charm, only a wonderful training of eye and ear, and sense of impending peril. Nevertheless, that could not forever avail against secret attack. That moment a rustling of leaves attracted her attention, then the familiar clinking accompaniment of a soft, slow, measured step, and Lassiter walked into the court. "'Jane, there's a fellow out there with a long gun,' he said, and removing his sombrero, showed his head bound in a bloody scarf. "'I heard the shot. I knew it was meant for you. Let me see. You can't be badly injured?' "'I reckon not. But maybe it wasn't a close call.' "'I'll sit here in this corner where nobody can see me from the grove.' He untied the scarf and removed it to show a long, bleeding furrow above his left temple. "'It's only a cut,' said Jane. "'But how it bleeds! Hold your scarf over it just a moment till I come back.' She ran into the house and returned with bandages, and while she bathed and dressed the wound, Lassiter talked. "'That fellow had a good chance to get me, but he must have flinched when he pulled the trigger.' As I dodged down, I saw him run through the trees. He had a rifle. I've been expecting that kind of gunplay. I reckon now I'll have to keep a little closer hid myself. These fellers all seem to get chilly or shaky when they draw a bead on me, but one of them might just happen to hit me. Won't you go away? Leave Cottonwoods, as I've begged you to, before someone does happen to hit you? She appealed to him. I reckon I'll stay. But, oh, Lassiter, your blood will be on my hands. See here, lady, look at your hands now, right now. Aren't they fine, firm, white hands? Aren't they bloody now? Lassiter's blood. That's a queer thing to stain your beautiful hands. But if you could only see deeper, you'd find a redder color of blood. Heart color, Jane. Oh, my friend. No, Jane, I'm not one to quit when the game grows hot, no more than you. This game, though, is new to me and I don't know the moves yet, else I wouldn't have stepped in front of that bullet. Have you no desire to hunt the man who fired at you, to find him and, and kill him? Well, I reckon I haven't any great hankering for that. Oh, the wonder of it! I knew, I prayed, I trusted. Lassiter, I almost gave all myself to soften you to Mormons. Thank God, and thank you, my friend. But, selfish woman that I am, this is no great test. What's the life of one of those sneaking cowards to such a man as you? I think of your great hate toward him who... I think of your life's implacable purpose. Can it be... Wait, listen, he whispered. I hear a hoss. He rose noiselessly, with his ear to the breeze. Suddenly he pulled his sombrero down over his bandaged head, and swinging his gun sheaths round in front, he stepped into the alcove. It's a hoss, coming fast, he added. Jane's listening ear soon caught a faint, rapid, rhythmic beat of hoofs. It came from the sage. It gave her a thrill that she was at a loss to understand. The sound rose stronger, louder. Then came a clear, sharp difference when the horse passed from the sage trail to the hard-packed ground of the grove. 
it became a ringing run, swift in its bell-like clatterings, yet singular in longer pause than usual between the hoof-beats of a horse. "'It's Wrangle! It's Wrangle!' cried Jane Witherstein. "'I'd know him from a million horses.' Excitement and thrilling expectancy flooded out all Jane Witherstein's calm. A tight band closed round her breast as she saw the giant sorrel flit in reddish-brown flashes across the openings in the green. Then he was pounding down the lane, thundering into the court, crashing his great iron-shod hoofs on the stone flags. Wrangle it was, surely, but shaggy and wild-eyed and sage-streaked, with dust-caked lather staining his flanks. He reared and crashed down and plunged. The rider leaped off, threw the bridle, and held hard on a lasso looped round Wrangle's head and neck. Jane's heart sank as she tried to recognize Venters in the rider. Something familiar struck her in the lofty stature, in the sweep of powerful shoulders. But this bearded, long-haired, unkempt man, who wore ragged clothes patched with pieces of skin and boots that showed bare legs and feet, this dusty, dark, and wild rider could not possibly be Venters. Whoa, Wrangle, old boy. Come down. Easy now. So, so, so. You're home, old boy, and presently you can have a drink of water, you'll remember. In the voice, Jane knew the rider to be Venters. He tied Wrangle to the hitching rack and turned to the court. Oh, Burn, you wild man, she exclaimed. Jane, Jane, it's good to see you. Hello, Lassiter. Yes, it's Venters. Like rough iron, his hard hand crushed Jane's. In it she felt the difference she saw in him. Wild, rugged, unshorn, yet how splendid! He had gone away a boy, he had returned a man. He appeared taller, wider of shoulder, deeper chested, more powerfully built. But was that only her fancy? Had he always been a young giant? Was the change one of spirit? He might have been absent for years, proven by fire and steel, grown like Lassiter, strong and cool and sure. His eyes, were they keener, more flashing than before, met hers with clear, frank, warm regard, in which perplexity was not, nor discontent, nor pain. "'Look at me long as you like,' he said with a laugh. "'I'm not much to look at. And, Jane, neither you nor Lassiter can brag. You're paler than I ever saw you. Lassiter here, he wears a bloody bandage under his hat.' That reminds me. Someone took a flying shot at me down in the sage. It made Wrangle run some. Well, perhaps you've more to tell me than I've got to tell you. Briefly, in a few words, Jane outlined the circumstances of her undoing in the weeks of his absence. Under his beard and bronze, she saw his face whiten in terrible wrath. Lassiter, what held you back? No time in the long period of fiery moments and sudden shocks had Jane Witherstein ever beheld Lassiter as calm and serene and cool as then. "'Jane had gloom enough without my adding to it by shooting up the village,' he said. As strange as Lassiter's coolness was Venter's curious, intense scrutiny of them both, and under it Jane felt a flaming tide wave from bosom to temples. "'Well, you're right.' he said, with slow pause. It surprises me a little, that's all. Jane sensed then a slight alteration in Venters, and what it was, in her own confusion, she could not tell. It had always been her intention to acquaint him with the deceit she had fallen to in her zeal to move Lassiter. She did not mean to spare herself. Yet now, at the moment, before these riders, it was an impossibility to explain. 
Venters was speaking somewhat haltingly, without his former frankness. I found Oldring's hiding place, and your red herd. I learned, I know, I'm sure there was a deal between Tull and Oldring. He paused and shifted his position and his gaze. He looked as if he wanted to say something that he found beyond him. Sorrow and pity and shame seemed to contend for mastery over him. Then he raised himself and spoke with effort. "'Jane, I've cost you too much. You've almost ruined yourself for me. It was wrong, for I'm not worth it. I never deserved such friendship. Well, maybe it's not too late. You must give me up. Mind, I haven't changed. I'm just the same as ever. I'll see Tull while I'm here, and tell him to his face.' "'Burn, it's too late,' said Jane." "'I'll make him believe,' cried Venters violently. "'You ask me to break our friendship?' "'Yes. If you don't, I shall.' "'Forever?' "'Forever.' Jane sighed. Another shadow had lengthened down the sage slope to cast further darkness upon her. A melancholy sweetness pervaded her resignation. The boy who had left her had returned a man, nobler, stronger, one in whom she divined something unbending as steel." There might come a moment later when she would wonder why she had not fought against his will, but just now she yielded to it. She liked him as well, nay, more, she thought, only her emotions were deadened by the long, menacing wait for the bursting storm. Once before she had held out her hand to him, when she gave it. Now she stretched it tremblingly forth in acceptance of the decree circumstance had laid upon them. Venters bowed over it, kissed it, pressed it hard, and half-stifled a sound very like a sob. Certain it was that when he raised his head, tears glistened in his eyes. "'Some women have a hard lot,' he said huskily. Then he shook his powerful form, and his rags lashed about him. "'I'll say a few things to Tull when I meet him.' "'Burn, you'll not draw on Tull? Oh, that must not be. Promise me.' "'I promise you this,' he interrupted, in stern passion that thrilled while it terrorized her. "'If you say one more word for that plotter, I'll kill him as I would a mad coyote.' Jane clasped her hands. Was this fire-eyed man the one whom she had once made as wax to her touch? Had Venters become Lassiter, and Lassiter Venters? "'I'll say no more,' she faltered. "'Jane, Lassiter once called you blind,' said Venters. It must be true, but I won't upbraid you. Only don't rouse the devil in me by praying for Tull. I'll try to keep cool when I meet him, that's all. Now there's one more thing I want to ask of you, the last. I found a valley down in the pass. It's a wonderful place. I intend to stay there. It's so hidden I believe no one can find it. There's good water and browse and game. I want to raise corn and stock. I need to take in supplies. Will you give them to me? Assuredly, the more you take, the better you'll please me, and perhaps the less my my enemies will get. Venters, I reckon you'll have trouble packing anything away, put in Lassiter. I'll go at night. Maybe that wouldn't be best. You'd sure be stopped. You'd better go early in the morning, say, just after dawn. That's the safest time to move round here. Lassiter, I'll be hard to stop, returned Venters, darkly. "'I reckon so.' "'Burn,' said Jane, "'go first to the riders' quarters "'and get yourself a complete outfit. "'You're a, a sight. "'Then help yourself to whatever else you need. 
burrows, packs, grain, dried fruits, and meat. You must take coffee and sugar and flour, all kinds of supplies. Don't forget corn and seeds. I remember how you used to starve. Please, please take all you can pack away from here. I'll make a bundle for you, which you mustn't open till you're in your valley. How I'd like to see it. To judge by you and Wrangle, how wild it must be. Jane walked down into the outer court and approached the sorrel. Upstarting, he laid back his ears and eyed her. "'Wrangle, dear old Wrangle,' she said, and put a caressing hand on his matted mane. "'Oh, he's wild, but he knows me. Burn, can he run as fast as ever?' "'Run? Jane, he's done sixty miles since last night at dark, and I could make him kill Black Star right now in a ten-mile race.' "'He never could.' protested Jane. He couldn't, even if he was fresh. "'I reckon maybe the best hoss will prove himself yet,' said Lassiter. "'And, Jane, if it ever comes to that race, I'd like you to be on Wrangle.' "'I'd like that, too,' rejoined Venters. "'But, Jane, maybe Lassiter's hint is extreme. Bad as your prospects are, you'll surely never come to the running point.' "'Who knows?' she replied, with mournful smile. "'No, no, Jane, it can't be so bad as all that. "'Soon as I see Tull, there'll be a change in your fortunes. "'I'll hurry down to the village. "'Now don't worry.' Jane retired to the seclusion of her room. Lassiter's subtle forecasting of disaster, Venter's forced optimism, neither remained in mind. Material loss weighed nothing in the balance with other losses she was sustaining. She wondered dully at her sitting there, hands folded listlessly, with a kind of numb deadness to the passing of time and the passing of her riches. She thought of Venter's friendship. She had not lost that, but she had lost him. Lassiter's friendship, that was more than love. It would endure, but soon he, too, would be gone. Little Fay slept dreamlessly upon the bed, her golden curls streaming over the pillow. Jane had the child's worship. Would she lose that, too? And if she did, what then would be left? Conscience thundered at her that there was left her religion. Conscience thundered that she should be grateful on her knees for this baptism of fire, that through misfortune, sacrifice, and suffering her soul might be fused pure gold. But the old, spontaneous, rapturous spirit no more exalted her. She wanted to be a woman, not a martyr." Like the saint of old who mortified his flesh, Jane Witherstein had in her the temper for heroic martyrdom, if by sacrificing herself she could save the souls of others. But here the damnable verdict blistered her that the more she sacrificed herself, the blacker grew the souls of her churchmen. There was something terribly wrong with her soul, something terribly wrong with her churchmen and her religion. In the whirling gulf of her thought there was yet one shining light to guide her, to sustain her in her hope and it was that, despite her errors and her frailties and her blindness, she had one absolute and unfaltering hold on ultimate and supreme justice. That was love. Love your enemies as yourself was a divine word, entirely free from any church or creed. Jane's meditations were disturbed by Lassiter's soft, tinkling step in the court. Always he wore the clinking spurs. Always he was in readiness to ride. She passed out and called him into the huge, dim hall. "'I think you'll be safer here. The court is too open,' she said. "'I reckon,' replied Lassiter. "'And it's cooler here. The day's sure muggy. "'Well, I went down to the village with Venters.' "'Already? Where is he?' 
queried Jane, in quick amaze. "'He's at the corrals. Blake's helping him get the burrows and packs ready. That Blake is a good fellow.' "'Did—did Burn meet tall?' "'I guess he did,' answered Lassiter, and he laughed dryly. "'Tell me. Oh, you exasperate me. You're so cool, so calm. For heaven's sake, tell me what happened.' First time I've been in the village for weeks,' went on Lassiter, mildly. "'I reckon there ain't been more of a show for a long time, me and Venters walkin' down the road. It was funny. I ain't sayin' anybody was particularly glad to see us. I'm not much thought of hereabouts, and Venters, he sure looks like what you called him, a wild man. Well, there was some runnin' of folks before we got to the stores. Then everybody vamoosed except some surprised rustlers in front of a saloon.' Venters went right in the stores and saloons, and of course I went along. I don't know which tickled me the most, the actions of many fellers we met, or Venters' nerve. Jane, I was downright glad to be along. You see, that sort of thing is my element, and I've been away from it for a spell. But we didn't find Tull in one of them places. Some Gentile feller at last told Venters he'd find Tull in that long building next to Parson's store. It's a kind of meeting room, and sure enough, when we peeped in, it was half full of men. Venters yelled, Don't anybody pull guns, we ain't come for that. Then he tramped in, and I was some put to keep alongside him. There was a hard, scraping sound of feet, a loud cry, and then some whispering, and after that, stillness you could cut with a knife. Tull was there, and that fat party who once tried to throw a gun on me, and other important-looking men, and that little frog-legged feller who was with Tull the day I rode in here. I wish you could have seen their faces, especially Tull's and the fat parties. But there ain't no use of me trying to tell you how they looked. Well, Venters and I stood there in the middle of the room with that batch of men all in front of us, and not a blamed one of them winked an eyelash or moved a finger. It was natural, of course, for me to notice many of them packed guns. That's a way of mine, first noticing them things. Venters spoke up, and his voice sort of chilled and cut, and he told Tull he had a few things to say. Here Lassiter paused while he turned his sombrero round and round, in his familiar habit, and his eyes had the look of a man seeing over again some thrilling spectacle, and under his red bronze there was strange animation. Like a shot, then, Venters told Tull that the friendship between you and him was all over, and he was leaving your place. He said you'd both of you broken off in the hope of propitiating your people, but you hadn't changed your mind otherwise, and never would. Next he spoke up for you. I ain't going to tell you what he said. Only no other woman who ever lived had such tribute. You had a champion, Jane, and never fear that those thick-skulled men don't know you now. It couldn't be otherwise. He spoke the ringing, lightning truth. Then he accused Tull of the underhand, miserable robbery of a helpless woman— he told Tull where the red herd was, of a deal made with Aldring, that Jerry Card had made the deal. I thought Tull was going to drop, and that little frog-legged cuss, he looked some limp and white. But Venter's voice would have kept anybody's legs from buckling. I was stiff myself. He went on and called Tull, called him every bad name ever known to a rider, and then some. He cursed Tull. I never hear a man get such a cursin'. He laughed in scorn at the idea of Tull being a minister. He said Tull and a few more dogs of hell builded their empire out of the hearts of such innocent and God-fearing women as Jane Witherstein. He called Tull a binder of women, a callous beast who hid behind a mock mantle of righteousness, 
and the last and lowest coward on the face of the earth. To prey on weak women through their religion, that was the last unspeakable crime. Then he finished, and by this time he'd almost lost his voice. But his whisper was enough. Tull, he said, she begged me not to draw on you today. She would pray for you if you burned her at the stake. But listen, I swear, if you and I ever come face to face again, I'll kill you. We backed out of the door then, and up the road. But nobody followed us. Jane found herself weeping passionately. She had not been conscious of it till Lassiter ended his story, and she experienced exquisite pain and relief in shedding tears. Long had her eyes been dry, her grief deep. Long had her emotions been dumb. Lassiter's story put her back on the rack. The appalling nature of Venter's act and speech had no parallel as an outrage. It was worse than bloodshed. Men like Tull had been shot, but had one ever been so terribly denounced in public? Overmounting her horror, an uncontrollable, quivering passion shook her very soul. It was sheer human glory in the deed of a fearless man. It was hot, primitive instinct to live, to fight. It was a kind of mad joy in Venter's chivalry. It was close to the wrath that had first shaken her in the beginning of this war waged upon her. "'Well, well, Jane, don't take it that way,' said Lassiter, in evident distress. "'I had to tell you. "'There's some things a feller just can't keep. "'It's strange you give up on hearing that "'when all this long time you've been the gamest woman I ever seen. "'But I don't know women. "'Maybe there's reason for you to cry. "'I know this. "'Nothing ever rang in my soul and so filled it as what Venters did.' I'd like to have done it, but I'm only good for throwing a gun, and it seems you hate that. Well, I'll be going now. Where? Venters took Wrangle to the stable. The sorrel shy a shoe, and I've got to help hold the big devil and put on another. Tell Byrne to come for the pack I want to give him, and, and to say good-bye, called Jane as Lassiter went out. Jane passed the rest of that day in a vain endeavor to decide what and what not to put in the pack for Venters. This task was the last she would ever perform for him, and the gifts were the last she would ever make him. So she picked and chose and rejected, and chose again, and often paused in sad reverie and began again, till at length she filled the pack. It was about sunset, and she and Fay had finished supper and were sitting in the court, when Venter's quick steps rang on the stones. She scarcely knew him, for he had changed the tattered garments, and she missed the dark beard and long hair. Still, he was not the Venters of old. As he came up the steps, she felt herself pointing to the pack, and heard herself speaking words that were meaningless to her. He said good-bye, he kissed her, released her, and turned away. His tall figure blurred in her sight, grew dim through dark, streaked vision, and then he vanished. Twilight fell around Witherstein House, and dusk, and night. Little Fay slept, but Jane lay with strained, aching eyes. She heard the wind moaning in the cottonwoods, and mice squeaking in the walls. The night was interminably long, yet she prayed to hold back the dawn. What would another day bring forth? The blackness of her room seemed blacker for the sad, entering gray of morning light. She heard the chirp of awakening birds, and fancied she caught a faint clatter of hoofs. Then low, dull, distant, throbbed a heavy gunshot, she had expected it, was waiting for it. Nevertheless, an electric shock checked her heart, froze the very living fiber of her bones. 
That vice-like hold on her faculties apparently did not relax for a long time, and it was a voice under her window that released her. "'Jane! Jane!' softly called Lassiter. She answered somehow. "'It's all right. Venter's got away. I thought maybe you'd heard that shot, and I was worried some.' "'What was it? Who fired?' Well, some fool feller tried to stop Venters out there in the sage, and he only stopped lead. I think it'll be all right. I haven't seen or heard of any other fellows round. Venters'll go through safe. And Jane, I've got Bell saddled, and I'm going to trail Venters. Mind, I won't show myself unless he falls foul of somebody and needs me. I want to see if this place where he's going is safe for him. He says nobody can track him there. I never seen the place yet I couldn't track a man to. Now, Jane, you stay indoors while I'm gone and keep close watch on Fay, will you? Yes. Oh, yes. And another thing, Jane, he continued, then paused for long. Another thing, if you ain't here when I come back, if you're gone, don't fear, I'll trail you. I'll find you out. My dear Lassiter, where could I be gone, as you put it? asked Jane, in curious surprise. I reckon you might be somewhere, maybe tied in an old barn, or corralled in some gulch, or chained in a cave. Millie Earn was, till she give in. Maybe that's news to you. Well, if you're gone, I'll hunt for you. No, Lassiter, she replied, sadly and low. If I'm gone, just forget the unhappy woman whose blinded, selfish deceit you repaid with kindness and love. She heard a deep, muttering curse under his breath and then the silvery tinkling of his spurs as he moved away. Jane entered upon the duties of that day with a settled, gloomy calm. Disaster hung in the dark clouds, in the shade, in the humid west wind. Blake, when he reported, appeared without his usual cheer, and Jurd wore a harassed look of a worn and worried man. And when Judkins put in appearance, riding a lame horse, and dismounted with the cramp of a rider, his dust-covered figure and his darkly grim, almost dazed expression told Jane of dire calamity. She had no need of words. "'Miss Witherstein, I have to report loss of the white herd,' said Judkins, hoarsely. "'Come, sit down. You look played out,' replied Jane solicitously. She brought him brandy and food, and while he partook of refreshments, of which he appeared badly in need, she asked no questions." "'No one rider could have done more, Miss Witherstein,' he went on presently. "'Judkins, don't be distressed. You've done more than any other rider. I've long expected to lose the white herd. It's no surprise. It's in line with other things that are happening. I'm grateful for your service.' "'Miss Witherstein, I knew how you'd take it. But if anything, that makes it harder to tell. You see, a feller wants to do so much for you, and I'd got fond of my job.' We led the herd a ways off to the north of the break in the valley. There was a big level and pools of water and tip-top brows. But the cattle was in a high, nervous condition. Wild as wild as antelope. You see, they'd been so scared they never slept. I ain't a-goin' to tell you of the many tricks that were pulled off out there in the sage. But there wasn't a day for weeks that the herd didn't get started to run. We allus managed to ride em close and drive em back and keep em bunched. Honest, Miss Witherstein, them steers was thin. They was thin when water and grass was everywhere. Thin at this season. That'll tell you how your steers was pestered. 
For instance, one night a strange running streak of fire run right through the herd. That streak was a coyote with an oiled and blazoned tail. For I shot it and found out. We had hell with the herd that night, and if the sage and grass hadn't been wet, we, hosses, steers, and all, would have burned up. But I said I wasn't going to tell you any of the tricks. Strange now, Miss Witherstein, when the stampede did come, it was from natural cause, just a whirling devil of dust. You've seen the like often. And this wasn't no big whirl, for the dust was mostly settled. It had dried out in a little swale, and ordinarily no steer would ever have run for it. But the herd was nervous and wild. And just as Lassiter said, when that bunch of white steers got to moving, they was as bad as buffalo. I've seen some buffalo stampedes back in Nebraska, and this bolt of the steers was the same kind. I tried to mill the herd just as Lassiter did, but I wasn't equal to it, Miss Witherstein. I don't believe the rider lives who could have turned that herd. We kept along of the herd for miles, and more than one of my boys tried to get the steers a millin'. It wasn't no use. We got off level ground, going down, and then the steers ran something fierce. We left the little gullies and washes level full of dead steers. Finally, I saw the herd was making to pass a kind of low pocket between ridges. There was a hogback, as we used to call em, a pile of rocks sticking up, and I saw the herd was going to split round it, or swing out to the left. And I wanted em to go to the right, so maybe we'd be able to drive em into the pocket. So, with all my boys except three, I rode hard to turn the herd a little to the right. We couldn't budge em. They went on and split round the rocks, and the most of em was turned sharp to the left by a deep wash we hadn't seen, had no chance to see. The other three boys, Jimmy Vale, Joe Willis, and that little Cairns boy, a nervy kid, they, with Cairns leading, tried to buck that herd round to the pocket. It was a wild, full idea. I couldn't do nothing. The boys got hemmed in between the steers and the wash that they hadn't no chance to see either. Vale and Willis was run down right before our eyes. And Cairns, who rode a fine hoss, he did some riding I never seen equaled, and would have beat the steers if there had been any room to run in. I was high up and could see how the steers kept spilling by twos and threes over into the wash. Cairns put his hoss to a place that was too wide for any hoss, and broke his neck and the hosses too. We found that out after, and as for Vale and Willis, two thousand steers ran over the poor boys. There wasn't much left to pack home for burying. And, Miss Witherstein, that all happened yesterday, and I believe if the white herd didn't run over the wall of the pass, it's running yet. On the morning of the second day after Judkins' recital, during which time Jane remained indoors, a prey to regret and sorrow for the boy riders, and a new and now strangely insistent fear for her own person, she again heard what she had missed more than she dared honestly confess, the soft, jingling step of Lassiter. Almost overwhelming relief surged through her, a feeling as akin to joy as any she could have been capable of in those gloomy hours of shadow, and one that suddenly stunned her with the significance of what Lassiter had come to mean to her. She had begged him, for his own sake, to leave Cottonwoods. She might yet beg that, if her weakening courage permitted her to dare absolute loneliness and helplessness, but she realized now that if she were left alone, her life would become one long, hideous nightmare. When his soft steps clinked into the hall, in answer to her greeting, and his tall, black-garbed form filled the door, she felt an inexpressible sense of immediate safety. In his presence she lost her fear of the dim passageways of Witherstein House, and of every sound. 
Always it had been that when he entered the court or the hall she had experienced a distinctly sickening but gradually lessening shock at sight of the huge black gun swinging at his sides. This time the sickening shock again visited her. It was, however, because a revealing flash of thought told her that it was not alone Lassiter who was thrillingly welcome, but also his fatal weapons. They meant so much. How she had fallen! How broken and spiritless must she be to have still the same old horror of Lassiter's guns and his name, yet feel somehow a cold, shrinking protection in their law and might and use. "'Did you trail Venters, find his wonderful valley?' she asked eagerly. "'Yes, and I reckon it's sure a wonderful place.' "'Is he safe there?' "'That's been bothering me some. I tracked him, and part of the trail was the hardest I ever tackled.' Maybe there's a rustler or somebody in this country who's as good at tracking as I am. If that's so, Venters ain't safe. Well, tell me all about Byrne and his valley. To Jane's surprise, Lassiter showed disinclination for further talk about his trip. He appeared to be extremely fatigued. Jane reflected that one hundred and twenty miles, with probably a great deal of climbing on foot, all in three days, was enough to tire any rider. Moreover, it presently developed that Lassiter had returned in a mood of singular sadness and preoccupation. She put it down to a moodiness over the loss of her white herd and the now precarious condition of her fortune. Several days passed, and as nothing happened, Jane's spirits began to brighten. Once in her musings she thought that this tendency of hers to rebound was as sad as it was futile. Meanwhile she had resumed her walks through the grove with little Fay. One morning she went as far as the sage. She had not seen the slope since the beginning of the rains, and now it bloomed a rich, deep purple. There was a high wind blowing, and the sage tossed and waved and colored beautifully from light to dark. Clouds scudded across the sky, and their shadows sailed darkly down the sunny slope. Upon her return toward the house she went by the lane to the stables, and she had scarcely entered the great open space with its corrals and sheds when she saw Lassiter hurriedly approaching. Fay broke from her, and, running to a corral fence, began to pat and pull the long, hanging ears of a drowsy burrow. One look at Lassiter armed her for a blow. Without a word he led her across the wide yard to the rise of the ground upon which the stable stood. "'Jane, look,' he said, and pointed to the ground. Jane glanced down, and again, and upon steadier vision made out splotches of blood on the stones, and broad, smooth marks in the dust leading out toward the sage. "'What made these?' she asked. "'I reckon somebody has dragged dead or wounded men out to where there was hosses in the sage.' "'Dead or wounded men?' "'I reckon—' "'Jane, are you strong? Can you bear up?' His hands were gently holding hers, and his eyes— Suddenly she could no longer look into them. "'Strong?' she echoed, trembling. "'I—I I will be.' Up on the stone-flagged drive, nicked with the marks made by the iron-shod hoofs of her racers, Lassiter led her, his grasp ever growing firmer. "'Where's Blake? And—and Jurd?' she asked haltingly. "'I don't know where Jurd is. Bolted, most likely,' replied Lassiter, as he took her through the stone door. "'But Blake—poor Blake—he's gone forever. Be prepared, Jane.' 
with a cold prickling of her skin, with a queer thrumming in her ears, with fixed and staring eyes, Jane saw a gun lying at her feet, with chamber swung and empty, and discharged shells scattered near. Outstretched upon the stable floor lay Blake, ghastly white, dead, one hand clutching a gun, and the other twisted in his bloody blouse. "'Whoever the thieves were, whether your people are rustlers, Blake killed some of them,' said Lassiter. "'Thieves?' whispered Jane. "'I reckon. Hoss-thieves. Look.' Lassiter waved his hand toward the stalls. The first stall, Bell's stall, was empty. All the stalls were empty. No racer whinnied and stamped greeting to her. Night was gone. Black Star was gone. End of chapter 15「As Lassiter had reported to Jane, Venters went through safely, and after a toilsome journey reached the peaceful shelter of Surprise Valley. When finally he lay wearily down under the silver spruces, resting from the strain of dragging packs and burrows up the slope and through the entrance to Surprise Valley, he had leisure to think, and a great deal of the time went in regretting that he had not been frank with his loyal friend Jane Witherstein. But, he kept continually recalling, when he had stood once more face to face with her, and had been shocked at the change in her, and had heard the details of her adversity, he had not had the heart to tell her of the closer interest which had entered his life. He had not lied, yet he had kept silence. Bess was in transports over the stores of supplies and the outfit he had packed from Cottonwoods. He had certainly brought a hundred times more than he had gone for, enough, surely, for years, perhaps to make permanent home in the valley. He saw no reason why he need ever leave there again. After a day of rest he recovered his strength and shared Bess's pleasure in rummaging over the endless packs, and began to plan for the future. And in this planning, his trip to Cottonwoods, with its revived hate of Tull and consequent unleashing of fierce passions, soon faded out of mind. By slower degrees his friendship for Jane Witherstein and his contrition drifted from the active preoccupation of his present thought to a place in memory, with more and more infrequent recalls. And as far as the state of his mind was concerned, upon the second day after his return, the valley, with its golden hues and purple shades, the speaking west wind, and the cool silent night, and Bess's watching eyes with their wonderful light, so wrought upon Venters that he might never have left them at all. That very afternoon he set to work. Only one thing hindered him upon beginning, though it in no wise checked his delight, and that in the multiplicity of tasks planned to make a paradise out of the valley, he could not choose the one with which to begin. He had to grow into the habit of passing from one dreamy pleasure to another, like a bee going from flower to flower in the valley and he found this wandering habit likely to extend to his labors. Nevertheless, he made a start. At the outset he discovered Bess to be both a considerable help in some ways, and a very great hindrance in others. 
Her excitement and joy were spurs, inspirations, but she was utterly impracticable in her ideas, and she flitted from one plan to another with bewildering vacillation. Moreover, he fancied that she grew more eager, youthful, and sweet, and he marked that it was far easier to watch her and listen to her than it was to work. Therefore he gave her tasks that necessitated her going often to the cave where he had stored his packs. Upon the last of these trips, when he was some distance down the terrace and out of sight of camp, he heard a scream, and then the sharp barking of the dogs. For an instant he straightened up, amazed. Danger for her had been absolutely out of his mind. She had seen a rattlesnake or a wildcat. Still, she would not have been likely to scream at sight of either, and the barking of the dogs was ominous. Dropping his work, he dashed back along the terrace. Upon breaking through a clump of aspens, he saw the dark form of a man in the camp. Cold, then hot, Venters burst into frenzied speed to reach his guns. He was cursing himself for a thoughtless fool when the man's tall form became familiar and he recognized Lassiter. Then the reversal of emotions changed his run to a walk. He tried to call out, but his voice refused to carry. When he reached camp, there was Lassiter staring at the white-faced girl. By that time, Ring and Whitey had recognized him. "'Hello, Venters. I'm making you a visit,' said Lassiter, slowly. "'And I'm some surprised to see you've a young feller for company.' One glance had sufficed for the keen rider to read Bess's real sex, and for once his cool calm had deserted him. He stared till the white of Bess's cheeks flared into crimson. That, if it were needed, was the concluding evidence of her femininity, for it went fittingly with her sun-tinted hair and darkened, dilated eyes, the sweetness of her mouth, and the striking symmetry of her slender shape. "'Heavens! Lassiter!' panted Venters, when he caught his breath. "'What relief! It's only you! How, in the name of all that's wonderful, did you ever get here?' "'I trailed you.' We, I, wanted to know where you was, if you had a safe place. So I trailed you. Trailed me, cried Venters, bluntly. I reckon. It was some of a job after I got to them smooth rocks. I was all day tracking you up to them little cut steps in the rock. The rest was easy. Where's your hoss? I hope you hit him. I tied him in them queer cedars down on the slope. He can't be seen from the valley. That's good. Well, well, I'm completely dumbfounded. It was my idea that no man could track me in here. I reckon, but if there's a tracker in these uplands as good as me, he can find you. That's bad. That'll worry me. But, Lassiter, now you're here, I'm glad to see you. And, and my companion here is not a young fellow. Bess, this is a friend of mine. He saved my life once. The embarrassment of the moment did not extend to Lassiter. Almost at once his manner, as he shook hands with Bess, relieved Venters and put the girl at ease. After Venters' words and one quick look at Lassiter, her agitation stilled, and, though she was shy, if she were conscious of anything out of the ordinary in the situation, certainly she did not show it. "'I reckon I'll only stay a little while,' Lassiter was saying. "'And if you don't mind troubling, I'm hungry. I fetched some biscuits along, but they're gone.' Venters, this place is sure the wonderfulest ever seen. Them cut steps on the slope, that outlet into the gorge. And it's like climbing up through hell into heaven to climb through that gorge into this valley. 
There's a queer-looking rock at the top of the passage. I didn't have time to stop. I'm wondering how you ever found this place. It's sure interesting. During the preparation and eating of dinner, Lassiter listened mostly, as was his wont, and occasionally he spoke in his quaint and dry way. Venters noted, however, that the rider showed an increasing interest in Bess. He asked her no questions, and only directed his attention to her while she was occupied and had no opportunity to observe his scrutiny. It seemed to Venters that Lassiter grew more and more absorbed in his study of Bess, and that he lost his coolness in some strange, softening sympathy. Then, quite abruptly, he arose, and announced the necessity for his early departure. He said good-bye to Bess in a voice gentle and somewhat broken, and turned hurriedly away. Venters accompanied him, and they had traversed the terrace, climbed the weathered slope, and passed under the stone bridge before either spoke again. Then Lassiter put a great hand on Venter's shoulder, and wheeled him to meet a smoldering fire of grey eyes. "'Lassiter, I couldn't tell Jane. I couldn't,' burst out Venters, reading his friend's mind. "'I tried, but I couldn't. She wouldn't understand, and she has troubles enough. And I love the girl.' "'Venters, I reckon this beats me. I've seen some queer things in my time, too. This girl, who is she?' I don't know. Don't know? What is she, then? I don't know that, either. Oh, it's the strangest story you ever heard. I must tell you, but you'll never believe. Venters, women were always puzzles to me. But for all that, if this girl ain't a child, and is innocent, I'm no fit person to think of virtue and goodness in anybody. Are you going to be square with her? I am, so help me God. I reckon so. Maybe my temper oughtn't led me to make sure. But, man, she's a woman in all but years. She's sweeter than the sage. Lassiter, I know, I know. And the hell of it is that in spite of her innocence and charm, she's, she's not what she seems. I wouldn't want to. Of course, I couldn't call you a liar, Venters, said the older man. What's more, she was Oldring's masked rider. Venters expected to floor his friend with that statement, but he was not in any way prepared for the shock his words gave. For an instant he was astounded to see Lassiter stunned. Then his own passionate eagerness to unbosom himself, to tell the wonderful story, precluded any other thought. "'Son, tell me all about this,' presently said Lassiter, as he seated himself on a stone and wiped his moist brow. Thereupon Venters began his narrative at the point where he had shot the rustler and Oldring's masked rider, and he rushed through it, telling all, not holding back even Bess's unreserved avowal of her love or his deepest emotions. "'That's the story,' he said, concluding. "'I love her, though I've never told her. If I did tell her, I'd be ready to marry her, and that seems impossible in this country. I'd be afraid to risk taking her anywhere. So I intend to do the best I can for her here.' "'The longer I live, the stranger life is,' mused Lassiter, with downcast eyes. "'I'm reminded of something you once said to Jane about hands in her game of life. "'There's that unseen hand of power, and Tull's black hand, and my red one, and your indifferent one, "'and the girl's little brown helpless one. "'And, Venters, there's another one that's all wise and all wonderful. "'That's the hand guiding Jane Witherstein's game of life.' Your story's one to-day's a far clearer head than mine. I can't offer no advice, even if you ask for it. 
Maybe I can help you. Anyway, I'll hold Oldring up when he comes to the village and find out about this girl. I knew the rustler years ago. He'll remember me. Lassiter, if I ever meet Oldring, I'll kill him, cried Venters with sudden intensity. I reckon that'd be perfectly natural, replied the rider. Make him think Bess is dead, as she is to him and that old life. Sure, sure, son. Cool down now. If you're going to begin pulling guns on Toll and Aldrin, you want to be cool. I reckon, though, you'd better keep hid here. Well, I must be leaving. One thing, Lassiter, you'll not tell Jane about Bess? Please don't. I reckon not, but I wouldn't be afraid to bet that after she'd got over anger at your secrecy, Venter, she'd be furious once in her life. She'd think more of you. I don't mind saying for myself that I think you're a good deal of a man. In the further ascent, Venters halted several times with the intention of saying good-bye, yet he changed his mind and kept on climbing till they reached Balancing Rock. Lassiter examined the huge rock, listened to Venter's idea of its position and suggestion, and curiously placed a strong hand upon it. "'Hold on!' cried Venters. "'I heaved at it once, and have never gotten over my scare.' "'Well, you do seem uncommon nervous,' replied Lassiter, much amused." Now, as for me, why, I always had the funniest notion to roll stones. When I was a kid, I did it, and the bigger I got, the bigger stones I'd roll. Ain't that funny? Honest, even now I often get off my horse just to tumble a big stone over a precipice and watch it drop, and listen to it bang and boom. I've started some slides in my time, and don't you forget it. I never seen a rock I wanted to roll as bad as this one. Wouldn't there just be roaring, crashing hell down that trail?' "'You'd close the outlet forever,' exclaimed Venters. "'Well, good-bye, Lassiter. Keep my secret and don't forget me. "'And be mighty careful how you get out of the valley below. "'The Rustler's Canyon isn't more than three miles up the pass. "'Now you've tracked me here, I'll never feel safe again.' "'In his descent to the valley, Venter's emotion, "'roused to stirring pitch by the recital of his love story, "'quieted gradually, and in its place came a sober, thoughtful mood.' All at once he saw that he was serious, because he would never more regain his sense of security while in the valley. What Lassiter could do, another skillful tracker might duplicate. Among the many riders with whom Venters had ridden, he recalled no one who could have taken his trail at Cottonwoods and have followed it to the edge of the bare slope in the pass, let alone up that glistening smooth stone. Lassiter, however, was not an ordinary rider. Instead of hunting cattle tracks, he had likely spent a goodly portion of his life tracking men. It was not improbable that among Oldring's rustlers there was one who shared Lassiter's gift for trailing, and the more Venters dwelt on this possibility, the more perturbed he grew. Lassiter's visit, moreover, had a disquieting effect upon Bess, and Venters fancied that she entertained the same thought as to future seclusion. The breaking of their solitude, though by a well-meaning friend, had not only dispelled all its dream and much of its charm, but had instilled a canker of fear. Both had seen the footprint in the sand. Venters did no more work that day. Sunset and twilight gave way to night, and the canyon bird whistled its melancholy notes, and the wind sang softly in the cliffs, and the campfire blazed and burned down to red embers. To Venters a subtle difference was apparent in all of these, or else the shadowy change had been in him. He hoped that on the morrow this slight depression would have passed away. In that measure, however, he was doomed to disappointment. 
Furthermore, Bess reverted to a wistful sadness that he had not observed in her since her recovery. His attempt to cheer her out of it resulted in dismal failure, and consequently in a darkening of his own mood. Hard work relieved him. Still, when the day had passed, his unrest returned. Then he set to deliberate thinking, and there came to him the startling conviction that he must leave Surprise Valley and take Bess with him. As a writer he had taken many chances, and as an adventurer in Deception Pass he had unhesitatingly risked his life, but now he would run no preventable hazard of Bess's safety and happiness, and he was too keen not to see that hazard. It gave him a pang to think of leaving the beautiful valley, just when he had the means to establish a permanent and delightful home there. One flashing thought tore in hot temptation through his mind. Why not climb up into the gorge, roll balancing rock down the trail, and close forever the outlet to Deception Pass? That was the beast in me showing his teeth, muttered Venters scornfully. I'll just kill him good and quick. I'll be fair to this girl if it's the last thing I do on earth. Another day went by in which he worked less and pondered more, and all the time covertly watched Bess. Her wistfulness had deepened into downright unhappiness, and that made his task to tell her all the harder. He kept the secret another day, hoping by some chance she might grow less moody, and to his exceeding anxiety she fell into far deeper gloom. Out of his own secret and the torment of it, he divined that she, too, had a secret, and the keeping of it was torturing her. As yet he had no plan thought out in regard to how or when to leave the valley, but he decided to tell her the necessity of it, and to persuade her to go. Furthermore, he hoped his speaking out would induce her to unburden her own mind. "'Bess, what's wrong with you?' he asked. "'Nothing,' she answered, with averted face. Venters took hold of her gently, though masterfully, forced her to meet his eyes. "'You can't look at me and lie.' he said. Now, what's wrong with you? You're keeping something from me. Well, I've got a secret, too, and I intend to tell it presently. Oh, I have a secret. I was crazy to tell you when you came back. That's why I was so silly about everything. I kept holding my secret back, gloating over it. But when Lassiter came, I got an idea. That changed my mind. Then I hated to tell you. Are you going to now? Yes, Yes, I was coming to it. I tried yesterday, but you were so cold. I was afraid. I couldn't keep it much longer. Very well, most mysterious lady, tell your wonderful secret. You needn't laugh, she retorted, with a first glimpse of reviving spirit. I can take the laugh out of you in one second. It's a go. She ran through the spruces to the cave, and returned carrying something which was manifestly heavy. Upon nearer view he saw that whatever she held with such evident importance had been bound up in a black scarf he well remembered. That alone was sufficient to make him tingle with curiosity. "'Have you any idea what I did in your absence?' she asked. "'I imagine you lounged about, waiting and watching for me,' he replied, smiling. "'I've my share of conceit, you know.' "'You're wrong. I worked. Look at my hands.' She dropped on her knees close to where he sat, and, carefully depositing the black bundle, she held out her hands. The palms and inside of her fingers were white, puckered, and worn. "'Why, Bess, you've been fooling in the water,' he said. "'Fooling? Look here!' 
with deft fingers she spread open the black scarf, and the bright sun shone upon a dull, glittering heap of gold. "'Gold!' he ejaculated. "'Yes, gold. See, pounds of gold. I found it, washed it out of the stream, picked it out grain by grain, nugget by nugget.' "'Gold!' he cried. "'Yes, now, now laugh at my secret.' For a long minute Venters gazed. Then he stretched forth a hand to feel if the gold was real. "'Gold!' he almost shouted. "'Bess, there are hundreds, thousands of dollars worth here.' He leaned over to her and put his hand, strong and clenching now, on hers. "'Is there more where this came from?' he whispered. "'Plenty of it, all the way up the stream to the cliff. You know I've often washed for gold. Then I've heard the men talk.' I think there's no great quantity of gold here, but enough for, for a fortune for you. That was your secret. Yes, I hate gold, for it makes men mad. I've seen them drunk with joy and dance and fling themselves around. I've seen them curse and rave. I've seen them fight like dogs and roll in the dust. I've seen them kill each other for gold. Is that why you hated to tell me? Not, not altogether. Bess lowered her head. It was because I knew you'd never stay here long after you found gold. You were afraid I'd leave you? Yes. Listen, you great simple child, listen. You sweet, wonderful, wild, blue-eyed girl. I was tortured by my secret. It was that I knew we, we must leave the valley. We can't stay here much longer. I couldn't think how we'd get away out of the country, or how we'd live, if we ever got out. I'm a beggar. That's why I kept my secret. I'm poor. It takes money to make way beyond Sterling. We couldn't ride horses or burros or walk forever. So while I knew we must go, I was distracted over how to go and what to do. Now we've gold. Once beyond Sterling, we'll be safe from rustlers. We've no others to fear. Oh, listen, Bess. Venters now heard his voice ringing high and sweet, and he felt Bess's cold hands in his crushing grasp as she leaned toward him, pale, breathless. "'This is how much I'd leave you. You made me live again. I'll take you away, far away from this wild country. You'll begin a new life. You'll be happy. You shall see cities, ships, people. You shall have anything your heart craves. All the shame and sorrow of your life shall be forgotten as if they had never been.' This is how much I leave you here alone, you sad-eyed girl. I love you. Didn't you know it? How could you fail to know it? I love you. I'm free. I'm a man. A man you've made. No more a beggar. Kiss me. This is how much I leave you here alone, you beautiful, strange, unhappy girl. But I'll make you happy. What, what do I care for your past? I love you. I'll take you home to Illinois, to my mother. Then I'll take you to far places. I'll make up all you've lost. Oh, I know you love me, knew it before you told me, and it changed my life. And you'll go with me, not as my companion, as you are here, nor my sister, but, best darling, as my wife. End of chapter 16、Chapter、Seventeen of Riders of the Purple Sage This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. 
Chapter 17. Wrangle's Race Run. The plan eventually decided upon by the lovers was for Venters to go to the village, secure a horse and some kind of a disguise for Bess, or at least less striking apparel than her present garb, and to return post-haste to the valley. Meanwhile she would add to their store of gold. Then they would strike the long and perilous trail to ride out of Utah. In the event of his inability to fetch back a horse for her, they intended to make the giant sorrel carry double. The gold, a little food, saddle blankets, and Venter's guns were to compose the light outfit with which they would make the start. "'I love this beautiful place,' said Bess. "'It's hard to think of leaving it.' "'Hard? Well, I should think so,' replied Venters. "'Maybe in years.' But he did not complete in words his thought that might be possible to return after many years of absence and change." Once again Bess bade Venters farewell under the shadow of Balancing Rock, and this time it was with whispered hope and tenderness and passionate trust. Long after he had left her, all down through the outlet to the pass, the clinging clasp of her arms, the sweetness of her lips, and the sense of a new and exquisite birth of character in her remained hauntingly and thrillingly in his mind. The girl who had sadly called herself nameless and nothing had been marvelously transformed in the moment of his avowal of love. It was something to think over, something to warm his heart, but for the present it had absolutely to be forgotten so that all his mind could be addressed to the trip so fraught with danger. He carried only his rifle, revolver, and a small quantity of bread and meat, and thus, lightly burdened, he made swift progress down the slope and out into the valley. Darkness was coming on, and he welcomed it. Stars were blinking when he reached his old hiding-place in the split of canyon wall, and by their aid he slipped through the dense thickets to the grassy enclosure. Wrangle stood in the center of it with his head up, and he appeared black and of gigantic proportions in the dim light. Venters whistled softly, began a slow approach, and then called. The horse snorted, and plunging away with dull, heavy sound of hoofs, he disappeared in the gloom. "'Wilder than ever!' muttered Venters. He followed the sorrel into the narrowing split between the walls, and presently had to desist because he could not see a foot in advance. As he went back toward the open, Wrangle jumped out of an ebony shadow of cliff, and like a thunderbolt shot huge and black past him down into the starlit glade. Deciding that all attempts to catch Wrangle at night would be useless, Venters repaired to the shelving rock where he had hidden saddle and blanket, and there went to sleep. The first peep of day found him stirring, and as soon as it was light enough to distinguish objects, he took his lasso off his saddle and went out to rope the sorrel. He espied Wrangle at the lower end of the cove and approached him in a perfectly natural manner. When he got near enough, Wrangle evidently recognized him, but was too wild to stand. He ran up the glade and on into the narrow lane between the walls. This favored Venter's speedy capture of the horse, so, coiling his noose ready to throw, he hurried on. Wrangle let Venters get to within a hundred feet, and then he broke. But as he plunged by, rapidly getting into his stride, Venters made a perfect throw with the rope. He had time to brace himself for the shock. Nevertheless, Wrangle threw him and dragged him several yards before halting. "'You wild devil!' said Venters, as he slowly pulled Wrangle up. "'Don't you know me?' "'Come now, old fellow. So, so.' Wrangle yielded to the lasso and then to Venter's strong hand. 
He was as straggly and wild-looking as a horse left to roam free in the sage. He dropped his long ears and stood readily to be saddled and bridled. But he was exceedingly sensitive and quivered at every touch and sound. Venters led him to the thicket, and bending the close saplings to let him squeeze through, at length reached the open. Sharp survey in each direction assured him of the usual lonely nature of the canyon. Then he was in the saddle, riding south. Wrangle's long, swinging canter was a wonderful ground-gainer. His stride was almost twice that of an ordinary horse, and his endurance was equally remarkable. Venters pulled him in occasionally, and walked him up the stretches of rising ground and along the soft washes. Wrangle had never yet shown any indication of distress while Venters rode him. Nevertheless, there was now reason to save the horse. Therefore, Venters did not resort to the hurry that had characterized his former trip. He camped at the last water in the pass. What distance that was to Cottonwoods he did not know. He calculated, however, that it was in the neighborhood of fifty miles. Early in the morning he proceeded on his way, and about the middle of the forenoon reached the constricted gap that marked the southerly end of the pass, and through which led the trail up to the sage level. He spied out Lassiter's tracks in the dust, but no others, and, dismounting, he straightened out Wrangle's bridle and began to lead him up the trail. The short climb, more severe on beast than on man, necessitated a rest on the level above, and during this he scanned the wide purple reaches of slope. Wrangle whistled his pleasure at the smell of the sage. Remounting, Venters headed up the white trail with the fragrant wind in his face. He had proceeded for perhaps a couple of miles, when Wrangle stopped with a suddenness that threw Venters heavily against the pommel. "'What's wrong, old boy?' called Venters, looking down for a loose shoe or a snake, or a foot lamed by a picked-up stone. Unrewarded, he raised himself from his scrutiny. Wrangle stood stiff head high, with his long ears erect. Thus guided, Venters swiftly gazed ahead to make out a dust-clouded, dark group of horsemen riding down the slope. If they had seen him, it apparently made no difference in their speed or direction. "'Wonder who they are?' exclaimed Venters. He was not disposed to run. His cool mood tightened under grip of excitement as he reflected that, whoever the approaching riders were, they could not be friends. He slipped out of the saddle and led Wrangle behind the tallest sagebrush. It might serve to conceal them until the riders were close enough for him to see who they were. After that he would be indifferent to how soon they discovered him. After looking to his rifle and ascertaining that it was in working order, he watched, and as he watched, slowly the force of a bitter fierceness, long dormant, gathered ready to flame into life. If those riders were not rustlers, he had forgotten how rustlers looked and rode. On they came, a small group, so compact and dark that he could not tell their number. How unusual that their horses did not see wrangle! But such failure, Venters decided, was owing to the speed with which they were traveling. They moved at a swift canter, affected more by rustlers than by riders. Venters grew concerned over the possibility that these horsemen would actually ride down on him before he had a chance to tell what to expect. When they were within three hundred yards, he deliberately led Wrangle out into the trail. Then he heard shouts and the hard scrape of sliding hoofs, and saw horses rear and plunge back with upflung heads and flying manes. Several little white puffs of smoke appeared sharply against the black background of riders and horses, and shots rang out. Bullets struck far in front of Venters and whipped up the dust, and then hummed low into the sage. 
The range was great for revolvers, but whether the shots were meant to kill or merely to check advance, they were enough to fire that waiting ferocity in Venters. Slipping his arm through the bridle so that Wrangle could not get away, Venters lifted his rifle and pulled the trigger twice. He saw the first horseman lean sideways and fall. He saw another lurch in his saddle and heard a cry of pain. Then Wrangle, plunging in fright, lifted Venters and nearly threw him. He jerked the horse down with a powerful hand and leaped into the saddle. Wrangle plunged again, dragging his bridle that Venters had not had time to throw in place. Bending over with a swift movement, he secured it and dropped the loop over the pommel. Then, with grinding teeth, he looked to see what the issue would be. The band had scattered so as not to afford such a broad mark for bullets. The riders faced Venters, some with red-belching guns. He heard a sharper report, and just as Wrangle plunged again, he caught the whim of a leaden missile that would have hit him but for Wrangle's sudden jump. A swift, hot wave, turning cold, passed over Venters. Deliberately he picked out the one rider with a carbine and killed him. Wrangle snorted shrilly and bolted into the sage. Venters let him run a few rods, then, with iron arm, checked him. Five riders, surely rustlers, were left. One leaped out of the saddle to secure his fallen comrade's carbine. A shot from Venters, which missed the man but sent the dust flying over him, made him run back to his horse. Then they separated. The crippled rider went one way, the one frustrated in his attempt to get the carbine rode another. Venters thought he made out a third rider, carrying a strange-appearing bundle and disappearing in the sage. But in the rapidity of action and vision he could not discern what it was. Two riders with three horses swung out to the right. Afraid of the long rifle, a burdensome weapon seldom carried by rustlers or riders, they had been put to rout. Suddenly Venters discovered that one of the two men last noted was riding Jane Witherstein's horse Bells, the beautiful bay racer she had given to Lassiter. Venters uttered a savage outcry. Then the small, wiry, frog-like shape of the second rider, and the ease and grace of his seat in the saddle, things so strikingly incongruous, grew more and more familiar in Venters' sight. "'Jerry Card!' cried Venters. It was indeed Tull's right-hand man. Such a white-hot wrath inflamed Venters that he fought himself to see with clearer gaze. "'It's Jerry Card!' he exclaimed instantly. "'And he's riding Black Star and leading Knight!' The long kindling, stormy fire in Venter's heart burst into flames. He spurred Wrangle, and as the horse lengthened his stride, Venter slipped cartridges into the magazine of his rifle, till it was once again full. Card and his companion were now half a mile or more in advance, riding easily down the slope. Venters marked the smooth gate, and understood it when Wrangle galloped out of the sage into the broad cattle trail down which Venters had once tracked Jane Witherstein's red herd. This hard-packed trail, from years of use, was as clean and smooth as a road. Venter saw Jerry Carr look back over his shoulder. The other rider did likewise. Then the three racers lengthened their stride to the point where the swinging canter was ready to break into a gallop. "'Wrangle, the race is on,' said Venters grimly. "'We'll canter with them, and gallop with them, and run with them. We'll let them set the pace.' Venters knew he bestrode the strongest, swiftest, most tireless horse ever ridden by any rider across the Utah uplands. 
Recalling Jane Witherstein's devoted assurance that Knight could run neck and neck with Wrangle, and Black Star could show his heels to him, Venters wished that Jane were there to see the race to recover her blacks, and in the unqualified superiority of the giant sorrel. Then Venters found himself thankful that she was absent, for he meant that race to end in Jerry Card's death. The first flush, the raging of Venters' wrath, passed, to leave him in sullen, almost cold possession of his will. It was a deadly mood, utterly foreign to his nature, engendered, fostered, and released by the wild passions of wild men in a wild country. The strength in him then, the thing rife in him that was not hate, but something as remorseless, might have been the fiery fruition of a whole lifetime of vengeful quest. Nothing could have stopped him. Venters thought out the race shrewdly. The rider on bells would probably drop behind and take to the sage. What he did was of little moment to Venters. To stop Jerry Card, his evil hidden career, as well as his present flight, and then to catch the blacks, that was all that concerned Venters. The cattle trail wound for miles and miles down the slope. Venters saw, with a rider's keen vision, ten, fifteen, twenty miles of clear purple sage. There were no oncoming riders or rustlers to aid Card. His only chance to escape lay in abandoning the stolen horses and creeping away in the sage to hide. In ten miles Wrangle could run Black Star and Knight off their feet, and in fifteen he could kill them outright. So Venters held the sorrel in, letting Card make the running. It was a long race that would save the blacks. In a few miles of that swinging canter Wrangle had crept appreciably closer to the three horses. Jerry Card turned again, and when he saw how the sorrel had gained, he put Black Star to a gallop. Knight and Bells, on either side of him, swept into his stride. Venters loosened the rein on Wrangle and let him break into a gallop. The sorrel saw the horses ahead and wanted to run, but Venters restrained him, and in the gallop he gained more than in the canter. Bells was fast in that gait, but Black Star and Knight had been trained to run. Slowly Wrangle closed the gap down to a quarter of a mile, and crept closer and closer. Jerry Card wheeled once more. Venters distinctly saw the red flash of his red face. This time he looked long. Venters laughed. He knew what passed in Card's mind. The rider was trying to make out what horse it happened to be that thus gained on Jane Witherstein's peerless racers. Wrangle had so long been away from the village that not improbably Jerry had forgotten— Besides, whatever Jerry's qualifications for his fame as the greatest rider of the sage, certain it was that his best point was not far-sightedness. He had not recognized Wrangle. After what must have been a searching gaze, he got his comrade to face about. This action gave Venters amusement. It spoke so surely of the facts that neither Card nor the rustler actually knew their danger. Yet if they kept to the trail, and the last thing such men would do would be to leave it, they were both doomed. This comrade of cards whirled far around in his saddle, and he even shaded his eyes from the sun. He, too, looked long. Then, all at once, he faced ahead again, and, bending lower in the saddle, began to fling his right arm up and down. That flinging Venters knew to be the lashing of bells. Jerry also became active, and the three racers lengthened out into a run. "'Now, Wrangle!' cried Venters. "'Run, you big devil! Run!' Venters laid the reins on Wrangle's neck and dropped the loop over the pommel. The sorrel needed no guiding on that smooth trail. 
He was surer-footed in a run than at any other fast gait, and his running gave the impression of something devilish. He might now have been actuated by Venter's spirit. Undoubtedly his savage running fitted the mood of his rider. Venters bent forward swinging with the horse, and gripped his rifle. His eye measured the distance between him and Jerry Card. In less than two miles of running, Bells began to drop behind the blacks, and Wrangle began to overhaul him. Venters anticipated that the rustler would soon take to the sage. Yet he did not. Not improbably he reasoned that the powerful sorrel could more easily overtake Bells in the heavier going outside of the trail. Soon only a few hundred yards lay between Bells and Wrangle. Turning in his saddle, the rustler began to shoot, and the bullets beat up little whiffs of dust. Venters raised his rifle, ready to take snapshots, and waited for favorable opportunity when Bells was out of line with the forward horses. Venters had it in him to kill these men as if they were skunk-bitten coyotes, but also he had restraint enough to keep from shooting one of Jane's beloved Arabians. No great distance was covered, however, before Bells swerved to the left, out of line with Black Star and Knight. Then Venters, aiming high and waiting for the pause between Wrangle's great strides, began to take snapshots at the rustler. The fleeing rider presented a broad target for a rifle, but he was moving swiftly forward and bobbing up and down. Moreover, shooting from Wrangle's back was shooting from a thunderbolt, and added to that was the danger of a low-placed bullet taking effect on Bell's. Yet, despite these considerations, making the shot exceedingly difficult, Venter's confidence, like his implacability, saw a speedy and fatal termination of that rustler's race. On the sixth shot the rustler threw up his arms and took a flying tumble off his horse. He rolled over and over, hunched himself to a half-erect position, fell, and then dragged himself into the sage. As Venters went thundering by, he peered keenly into the sage, but caught no sight of the man. Bells ran a few hundred yards, slowed up, and had stopped when Wrangle passed him. Again Venters began slipping fresh cartridges into the magazine of his rifle, and his hand was so sure and steady that he did not drop a single cartridge. With the eye of a rider and the judgment of a marksman, he had once more measured the distance between him and Jerry Card. Wrangle had gained, bringing him into rifle range. Venters was hard put to it now not to shoot, but thought it better to withhold his fire. Jerry, who, in anticipation of a running fusillade, had huddled himself into a little twisted ball on Black Star's neck, now surmising that this pursuer would make sure of not wounding one of the blacks, rose to his natural seat in the saddle. In his mind, perhaps, as certainly as in Venters, this moment was the beginning of the real race. Venters leaned forward to put his hand on Wrangle's neck, then backwards to put it on his flank. Under the shaggy, dusty hair trembled and vibrated and rippled a wonderful muscular activity. But Wrangle's flesh was still cold. What a cold-blooded brute, thought Venters, and felt in him a love for the horse he had never given to any other. It would not have been humanly possible for any rider, even though clutched by hate or revenge or a passion to save a loved one or fear of his own life, to be astride the sorrel, to swing with his swing, to see his magnificent stride and hear the rapid thunder of his hoofs, to ride him in that race and not glory in the ride. So, with his passion to kill, still keen and unabated, Venters lived out that ride and drank a rider's sage-sweet cup of wildness to the dregs. 
When Wrangle's long mane, lashing in the wind, stung Venters in the cheek, the sting added a beat to his flying pulse. He bent a downward glance to try to see Wrangle's actual stride, and saw only twinkling, darting streaks and the white rush of the trail. He watched the sorrel's savage head, pointed level, his mouth still closed and dry, but his nostrils distended as if he were snorting unseen fire. Wrangle was the horse for a race with death. Upon each side Venters saw the sage merged into a sailing, colorless wall. In front sloped the lay of ground, with its purple breadth split by the white trail. The wind, blowing with heavy, steady blast into his face, sickened him with enduring, sweet odor, and filled his ears with a hollow, rushing roar. Then, for the hundredth time, he measured the width of space, separating him from Jerry Card. Wrangle had ceased to gain. The blacks were proving their fleetness. Venters watched Jerry Card, admiring the little rider's horsemanship. He had the incomparable seat of the upland rider, born in the saddle. It struck Venters that Card had changed his position, or the position of the horses. Presently Venters remembered positively that Jerry had been leading Knight on the right-hand side of the trail. The racer was now on the side to the left. No, it was Black Star. But, Venters argued in amaze, Jerry had been mounted on Black Star. Another clearer, keener gaze assured Venters that Black Star was really riderless. Knight now carried Jerry Card. "'He's changed from one to the other,' ejaculated Venters, realizing the astounding feat with unstinted admiration. "'Changed at full speed. "'Jerry Card, that's what you've done, unless I'm drunk on the smell of sage. "'But I've got to see the trick before I believe it.' Thenceforth, while Wrangle sped on, Venters glued his eyes to the little rider. Jerry Card rode as only he could ride. Of all the daring horsemen of the uplands, Jerry was the one rider fitted to bring out the greatness of the blacks in that long race. He had them on a dead run, but not yet at the last strained and killing pace. From time to time he glanced backward, as a wise general in retreat, calculating his chances, and the power and speed of pursuers, and the moment for the last desperate burst. No doubt, Card, with his life at stake, gloried in that race, perhaps more wildly than Venters, for he had been born to the sage and the saddle and the wild. He was more than half horse. Not until the last call, the sudden upflashing instinct of self-preservation, would he lose his skill and judgment and nerve and the spirit of that race. Venters seemed to read Jerry's mind. That little crime-stained rider was actually thinking of his horses, husbanding their speed, handling them with knowledge of years, glorying in their beautiful, swift, racing stride, and wanting them to win the race when his own life hung suspended in quivering balance. Again Jerry whirled in his saddle, and the sun flashed red on his face. Turning, he drew Black Star closer and closer toward night, till they ran side by side as one horse. Then Card raised himself in the saddle, slipped out of the stirrups, and, somehow twisting himself, leaped upon Black Star. He did not even lose the swing of the horse. Like a leech, he was there in the other saddle, and as the horses separated, his right foot, that had been apparently doubled under him, shot down to catch the stirrup. The grace and dexterity and daring of that rider's act won something more than admiration from Venters. For the distance of a mile, Jerry rode Black Star, and then changed back to night. But all Jerry's skill and the running of the blacks could avail little more against the sorrel. 
Venters peered far ahead, studying the lay of the land. Straight away for five miles the trail stretched, and then it disappeared in hummocky ground. To the right, some few rods, Venters saw a break in the sage, and this was the rim of Deception Pass. Across the dark cleft gleamed the red of the opposite wall. Venters imagined that the trail went down into the pass somewhere north of those ridges, and he realized that he must and would overtake Jerry Card in this straight course of five miles. Cruelly he struck his spurs into Wrangle's flanks. A light touch of spur was sufficient to make Wrangle plunge. And now, with a ringing, wild snort, he seemed to double up in muscular convulsions, and to shoot forward with an impetus that almost unseated Venters. The sage blurred by, the trail flashed by, and the wind robbed him of breath and hearing. Jerry Card turned once more, and the way he shifted to Black Star showed he had to make his last desperate running. Venters aimed to the side of the trail, and sent a bullet puffing the dust beyond Jerry. Venters hoped to frighten the rider and get him to take to the sage. But Jerry returned the shot, and his ball struck dangerously close in the dust at Wrangle's flying feet. Venters held his fire then, while the rider emptied his revolver. For a mile, with Black Star leaving Knight behind and doing his utmost, Wrangle did not gain. For another mile he gained little, if at all. In the third he caught up with the now galloping Knight, and began to gain rapidly on the other Black. Only a hundred yards now stretched between Black Star and Wrangle. The giant sorrel thundered on and on and on. In every yard he gained a foot. He was whistling through his nostrils, wringing wet, flying lather, and as hot as fire. Savage as ever, strong as ever, fast as ever, but each tremendous stride jarred Venters out of the saddle. Wrangle's power and spirit and momentum had begun to run him off his legs. Wrangle's great race was nearly won, and run. Venter seemed to see the expanse before him as a vast, sheeted, purple plain sliding under him. Black Star moved in it as a blur. The rider, Jerry Card, appeared a mere dot, bobbing dimly. Wrangle thundered own, own, own. Venters felt the increase in quivering, straining shock after every leap. Flecks of foam flew into Venter's eyes, burning him, making him see all the sage as red. But in that red haze he saw, or seemed to see, Black Star suddenly riderless and with broken gait. Wrangle thundered on to change his pace with a violent break. Then Venters pulled him hard. From run to gallop, gallop to canter, canter to trot, trot to walk, and walk to stop, the great sorrel ended his race. Venters looked back. Black Star stood riderless in the trail. Jerry Card had taken to the sage. Far up the white trail, night came trotting faithfully down. Venters leaped off, still half-blind, reeling dizzily. In a moment he had recovered sufficiently to have a care for Wrangle. Rapidly he took off the saddle and bridle. The sorrel was reeking, heaving, whistling, shaking. But he had still the strength to stand, and for him Venters had no fears. As Venters ran back to Blackstar, he saw the horse stagger on shaking legs into the sage and go down in a heap. Upon reaching him, Venters removed the saddle and bridle. Black Star had been killed on his legs, Venters thought. He had no hope for the stricken horse. Black Star lay flat, covered with bloody froth, mouth wide, tongue hanging, eyes glaring, and all his beautiful body in convulsions. 
Unable to stay there to see Jane's favorite racer die, Venters hurried up the trail to meet the other black. On the way he kept a sharp lookout for Jerry Card. Venters imagined the rider would keep well out of range of the rifle, but as he would be lost on the sage without a horse, not improbably he would linger in the vicinity on the chance of getting back one of the blacks. Night soon came trotting up, hot and wet and run out. Venters led him down near the others, and, unsaddling him, let him loose to rest. Knight wearily lay down in the dust and rolled, proving himself not yet spent. Then Venters sat down to rest and think. Whatever the risk, he was compelled to stay where he was, or comparatively near, for the night. The horses must rest and drink. He must find water. He was now seventy miles from Cottonwoods, and, he believed, close to the canyon where the cattle trail must surely turn off and go down into the pass. After a while he rose to survey the valley. He was very near to the ragged edge of a deep canyon into which the trail turned. The ground lay in uneven ridges divided by washes, and these sloped into the canyon. Following the canyon line, he saw where its rim was broken by other intersecting canyons, and farther down, red walls and yellow cliffs, leading toward a deep blue cleft that he made sure was Deception Pass. Walking out a few rods to a promontory, he found where the trail went down. The descent was gradual, along a stone-walled trail, and Venters felt sure that this was the place where Aldring drove cattle into the pass. There was, however, no indication at all that he ever had driven cattle out at this point. Aldring had many holes to his burrow. In searching round in the little hollows, Venters, much to his relief, found water. He composed himself to rest and eat some bread and meat, while he waited for a sufficient time to elapse so that he could safely give the horses a drink. He judged the hour to be somewhere around noon. Wrangle lay down to rest, and night followed suit. So long as they were down, Venters intended to make no move. The longer they rested, the better, and the safer it would be to give them water. By and by he forced himself to go over to where Black Star lay, expecting to find him dead. Instead, he found the racer partially, if not wholly, recovered. There was recognition, even fire, in his big black eyes. Venters was overjoyed. He sat by the black for a long time. Black Star presently labored to his feet with a heave and a groan, shook himself, and snorted for water. Venters repaired to the little pool he had found, filled his sombrero, and gave the racer a drink. Black Star gulped it at one draft, as if it were but a drop, and pushed his nose into the hat and snorted for more. Venters now led Knight down to drink, and after a further time, Black Star also. Then the blacks began to graze. The sorrel had wandered off down the sage between the trail and the canyon. Once or twice he disappeared in little swales. Finally Venters concluded Wrangle had grazed far enough, and taking his lasso, he went to fetch him back. In crossing from one ridge to another, he saw where the horse had made muddy a pool of water. It occurred to Venters then that Wrangle had drunk his fill, and did not seem the worse for it, and might be anything but easy to catch. And, true enough, he could not come within roping reach of the sorrel. He tried for an hour, and gave up in disgust. Wrangle did not seem so wild as simply perverse. In a quandary, Venters returned to the other horses, hoping much, yet doubting more, that when Wrangle had grazed to suit himself, he might be caught. As the afternoon wore away, Venters' concern diminished, yet he kept close watch on the blacks and the trail and the sage. There was no telling of what Jerry Card might be capable. 
Venters suddenly acquiesced to the idea that the rider had been too quick and too shrewd for him. Strangely and doggedly, however, Venters clung to his foreboding of Card's downfall. The wind died away, the red sun topped the far-distant western rise of slope, and the long, creeping purple shadows lengthened. The rims of the canyons gleamed crimson, and the deep clefts appeared to belch forth blue smoke. Silence enfolded the scene. It was broken by a horrid, long-drawn scream of a horse and the thudding of heavy hoofs. Venters sprang erect and wheeled south. Along the canyon rim, near the edge, came Wrangle, once more in thundering flight. Venters gasped in amazement. Had the wild sorrel gone mad? His head was high and twisted, in a most singular position for a running horse. Suddenly Venters descried a frog-like shape clinging to Wrangle's neck. Jerry Card. Somehow he had straddled Wrangle and now stuck like a huge burr. But it was his strange position and the sorrel's wild scream that shook Venters' nerves. Wrangle was pounding toward the turn where the trail went down. He plunged onward like a blind horse. More than one of his leaps took him to the very edge of the precipice. Jerry Card was bent forward with his teeth fast in the front of Wrangle's nose. Venters saw it, and there flashed over him a memory of this trick of a few desperate riders. He even thought of one rider who had worn off his teeth in this terrible hold to break or control desperate horses. Wrangle had indeed gone mad. The marvel was what guided him. Was it the half-brute, the more-than-half-horse instinct of Jerry Card? Whatever the mystery, it was true, and in a few more rods Jerry would have the sorrel turning into the trail leading down into the canyon. "'No, Jerry,' whispered Venters, stepping forward and throwing up the rifle. He tried to catch the little humped, frog-like shape over the sights. It was moving too fast. It was too small. Yet Venters shot once, twice, the third time, four times, five, all wasted shots in precious seconds. With a deep-muttered curse, Venters caught Wrangle through the sights and pulled the trigger. Plainly he heard the bullet thud. Wrangle uttered a horrible, strangling sound. In swift death action he whirled, and with one last splendid leap he cleared the canyon rim, and he whirled downward with a little frog-like shape clinging to his neck. There was a pause which seemed never-ending, a shock and an instant silence. Then up rolled a heavy crash, a long roar of sliding rocks dying away in distant echo, then silence unbroken. Wrangle's race was run. End of chapter 17。Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.